Yep, chatter. Hey, fat fish heads. It's time for another edition of the hottest new podcast on all platforms. Fat fish. Sit back and strap yourself in for the wildest ride on the open seas. Now, lap your fins for the fabulous Fat Fish Brothers, Eric Fish Snyder and Brad Grunny Grunberg, a.k.a. Snacks. What's happening, my friend? Good. Well, welcome to show number 50. Five oh baby, book them, Dano. Murder one. We we are gonna have a show tonight. We are gonna have the greatest show because we are bringing back from our early days the man himself, Mr. Tony Orlando. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Yeah. All right. Why don't we just bring him on? Let's do it. Where's Tony? There he is. Tony, let me tell you something. Show 50? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Congratulations to both of you. My gosh, that's great. And everybody that saw me on your show the last time I was on, I go on the road and people would say, I love that podcast. They love you out there. Uh, so you're really making it, making big, big, big uh, uh, audiences are growing, growing, growing. Because a lot of podcasts out there, you guys are shining. In the top 10, top five of all of them. God bless you. Well, you're our good luck charm. So we brought you back for 5 0, Tony. Um, Fish is so excited. Did you wear your diaper this time? Did you wear your diaper? Well, yeah. you know, you know, it's a lineage to this guy because he's our second podcast we ever did. Is I got the pleasure of, uh, between that podcast and today of meeting and getting to know and becoming a friend of his son, John. And there's a word mensch. John, your son is one of the greatest people I've ever met. And he did, he's done so well for Brad and I with the podcast, letting us use the studio to do Carrot Top, Tony. Um, from one father to another. I mean, Brad's a father of a dog with your dad. He did a great job with that kid. Yeah. That's so nice of you to say. I'm very proud of John. You know, John has done great on his own. He's never really worked for a company. Everything that he's done, he's done on his own. He's created his own companies. And I'm just very proud of him because what he has done, I think Brad and you will attest to this, is he's kept his friends. And oh. that's the greatest thing about John. As a matter of fact, Brad, I'll tell you something. You're the same way. But John will, will call him. I'll say, John, did you see? As I spoke to my high school teacher yesterday. I said, what? Your baseball coach? He goes, yeah, I speak to him all the time. And then he'll say to me, I spoke to my girlfriend. I remember the girl I, in 1915 I dated. I said, yeah, and you talk to her still. It's amazing how he keeps in touch with everybody, which is a quality I think I really admire in my son, John. Very loyal. I have two stories about both your children. Uh, one, John, we had him on um, after his beautiful mother passed away, Elaine. Yeah. And John doesn't show a lot of emotion. But I'm going to tell you, I got some tears out of my man. And uh, he spoke about how Elena always said, be kind, John, be kind, as he would leave the house. What a woman. You uh, you definitely uh, met the right woman and had uh, beautiful John. And you have a beautiful daughter named Jenny who set all this up today. And by the way, we have an announcement. Uh, we are getting married uh, in Vegas. You're invited. Uh, and, uh, Elvis. Elvis is going to marry us with a Talus and a Yamaka. Okay? <laughs> I love it. Oh, beautiful. I love Jenny. She's the best. She is. I'm blessed with two great kids, you know. And John did go through a really, really emotional time for John when he lost yeah. his mom. You know, she and he took care of her with his brother Kenny yes. right through all of her changes. You know, this I this whole thing about getting older and and uh, Alzheimer's and dementia is something that I don't remember my mother's era ever talking about it as much as there is. There must be something in the water, something in the food. Because I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I didn't hear anything about dementia. People 80 years old, they didn't. It just seems so much common now. Maybe it's because 
we have more <clears throat> ability and more platforms to hear about it. But the truth of the matter is, I, I swear, it, it seems like something that didn't exist in the 50s to me. You guys agree with that? Yeah, I think that people maybe knew about it, but didn't talk about it, you know, kind of like cancer, too. You know, people knew a lot about it. What about you, Fish? What do you think? Well, maybe you heard this because uh, my family's from New York, like you are, Tony. They, they said that, oh, Esther's turning senile. The senile is the big word. You that's know? true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Or hardening, hardening of the arteries. Hardening of the arteries. Yeah, you know what? Now, you, now that you say that, it was there. It was always there. You're right. Absolutely. But in a different context, yeah. Um, and you know, Elaine, John's mom, was one of the brightest, brightest. IQ level was amazing. She had an IQ of a 180. So that's like wow. high. And she was extremely, extremely extraordinary, bright, intellectual woman. She was very special. Very special. And John. Well, what you taught your son, your son comes on the show. He does a 17 minute and 23 second story about losing a job and, and telling a buddy that he's working with, I'm going to go to Vegas, win 10 grand, and take you to Benny Hanna tonight. <laughs> and that story, I still get people emailing saying, get that story to us. Can you clip it out? Can you do it? And you know the story of him and Michael Jordan. I said, you got to make a Netflix documentary. You got to make a miniseries about that one day. That was amazing. Great. And you know what's really great about John and his mom is my wife, Freddie, and I, we married 34 years. And when uh, Elaine was, uh, well, maybe two years before she passed, they got on the internet together. They spoke together. John was there because uh, John's very close to my wife, Franny. And Elaine said the sweetest thing. She said, oh, my God, Franny is so cute. I want to jump through the screen and just give you a big hug. Uh, that was a very important moment for all of us in the family because there was a recognition of the fact that, yes, we had a marriage, but we also shared something we could never change, and that's a child together. And she felt the same way. And John has been very close to to Franny. So it was a very beautiful ending on all part. It was really special. Well, it starts with you, Tony. You're an amazing human being. And you're like the rain man because you have a memory like no other. And I have a couple of stories I want to share with you. One is a guy that uh, Fish and I know. His name is David Bruner. And you saw him at a show. And he was screaming out to you, to, you know, to uh, sing some of your classics and you you didn't. You go, who, what the, who is this guy? Get up here. Do you remember this story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a great story because he came up on stage. He he, he brought his mom and his, and his mother-in-law and his wife and had a great time. And he, he just sang songs with you. I think he sang uh, Pennsylvania Polka. And, and then five years go by. It was rolled out the barrel, actually. Oh, it was, okay. Rain, man. There you go. And and then five years later, he showed up again and same thing. And oh, by the way, as he was leaving the first uh, time he saw you, he goes, oh, my, oh, my back. And you're like, are you OK, David? Are you OK? He goes, yeah, my back's killing me from, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> what, was it, what was his line? My back is killing me. Um, uh, from carrying the show tonight. And then, <laughs> and, and then five years later, he, you have him backstage and this and that. And then as he's leaving, as you visit with your, you know, after the show, uh, you know, uh, meet and greets, you say, hey, David, how's your fucking back now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it, love it. I mean. Yeah. So you know, a lot of people have been calling me about, the uh, documentary on George Carlin. I don't know if you watched that documentary, you guys. No, but no. I had the opportunity of of, uh, of being asked to be on it because I had a very close relationship with, with George. And it's amazing the response that people had gotten because they didn't know that myself and George were very close. And as a matter of fact, the reason I think it had impact was because if you remember, Carlin went through a pretty slow period when the Seven Dirty Words came out. So there were no bookings for him. He was literally blackballed out of Vegas. They, they wouldn't hire him. Wow. He was off television. He couldn't get any television. And I had at the time a show 
in the last two years at CBS on the network called The Rainbow Hour. And they were trying to get a little bit more edgy. It was a mistake on our part. But it, nevertheless, they were trying to get a little more edgy because Saturday Night Live it was so popular. They wanted the sketches not to be so vaudevillian, but more a little more edgy Saturday Night Live-ish. So I get a call from George Carlin, Brad, and he says, uh, Tony, do me a favor. Could you put, give me a shot on your show? And I said, I said, well, what's going on? He goes, well, you know, the 730 words thing, I can't get any work. I said, George Collin, you're a genius. What do you mean you can't get any work? So I, 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 I went to Fred Silliman, the president of CBS, and I said, I'd like to have George Collin as a regular. And, and he looks up and he goes, are you out of your fucking mind, Tony? <laughs> problem you got with George Carlin, the seven dirty words? Are you crazy? We got the family hour and you want George Carlin on the Tony Orlando and Dawn show? Rainbow? I said, listen, he's a genius. Furthermore, if we bring him on as a regular, will we get a lot of publicity? Oh, yeah. I said, more than, more than you can buy, Freddie? He said, yeah. Wait a minute. I get your point. So I called George. I said, George, come to my office. Comes to my office. I said, now cut your hair down a little bit. Clean up just a little bit. Don't shave the beard. Just keep it nice and close. I said, and promise me that when you come on, you'll be, you, you won't be coming up with stuff like that. He said, Tony, I can't believe whatever you want me to do. Wow. I said, oh, I said, okay, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to do five minutes, and I'm going to say it's time for George. You won't follow a sketch. You won't follow a song. You'll come right out of my introduction into your five minutes, and then we'll go to commercial, so it'll be like your five-minute show. So comes opening night. 36 million people are watching, and I say, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for George. And in comes a close-up on George. The camera comes low, slow. And he looks at the camera and he goes, you know, you're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. And I look up to the booth where the director said, and I can see Freddie Silverman going like this. And I can see the, the, the suits from CBS going, oh, my God, he's talking about death. <laughs> they're going to turn the show off what is he crazy so he comes off the stage I said George are you kidding me the first thing you talk about is death he said Tony I just wanted to prove that there's a word worse than fuck <laughs> and, and, and the point was well taken because they really got so upset like he had the F word, the F bomb, and he just said death. But oh. death to them was a, a no no, you know? And so it just showed. So I told this story on, on another podcast, I think it was John's podcast, and it came back. I can't tell you the people that love that story because George was very prophetic in his humor. He really did tell the truth. And he was a genius, and I was very was a genius. Yeah, out of that relationship with him. Well, it's funny. Uh, Fish has a story about George Carlin, and you might have gone into the Fish Bar because you lived right down the street from uh, the the bar Fish started in in L.A. called Mom's Saloon. Oh Tell yeah, the story Fish. Tell him the story. Well, I'm gonna the story. <laughs> George had his offices up there in eleven triple seven building. The bar was on the bottom, and I developed a relationship with him. You come in. The guy ordered a Budweiser and had didn't want to talk to anyone, anyone. Well, there was a little barber shop next to the place, and this guy named Al Davis, not the owner of the Raiders, but a guy named Al Davis who had this crazy laugh, like, <laughs> a walk-in. There's seven seats at the bar, Tony. Al always got his way next to George Carlin. And one day he's talking about, this is 1983, and George is drinking his Budweiser, and he always looked at me when someone was talking to him. Right, to give the you now give the signal like get rid of this guy, and Al's talking about that women used to were coming into his barbershop to get 
their vaginas trimmed with the scissors, right? <laughs> George, he gets up and leaves. The guy comes in about a week later, and George walks in with a present, and he gives it to Al, and Al goes, this is for me. <laughs> Almost nervous laughs, right? And he opens the present, and there's a bunch of all kinds of underwear in there. And he says, you look, and George says, the girls must have taken their underwear off. Did they put them back on again? And he's doing it with a straight face. We're all on the ground laughing. He goes, ah, this is great. I don't know what happened to underwear. <laughs> the way, I mean, who, who would think to do something like that other than George Carlin, you know? What a guy. You know, one of the great things about, like with Brad, you know, I've always, for some reason, I've always gotten close to comics, always became friends with comedians. Yeah, like Brad. And, I, and you and him, yeah. And I, I don't know what, uh, for instance, I remember, I remember seeing, I went to the improv one night in New York and, and there was Rodney Dangerfield on stage. And it was like, I don't know, there must've been 12 people in the audience. It was like midnight. It was a Wednesday night. And Richard Pryor was a good friend of mine. And he said, hey man, you gotta come see, he's funny, man. So we're sitting there watching, you know, watching Rodney work. So I said, Rodney, I said, what's what's going on with you? I don't see you in Vegas. He goes, Tony, I had to open Dangerfields. Things are not going really well for me. Dangerfields not doing well. I'm not doing that great. I can't get. I said, now I understand. At that time, I was doing three weeks at the Riviera Hotel, and we were selling out shows to the point where we had to turn away people. It was that hot for us with a TV show, we had number one records, all that stuff was playing into the game. So I was really in, in a place that not many people find in this lifetime. And I was grateful for it, though I never took it for granted. But I always, when he said, you know, I, I said, well, why don't you come to Vegas with me? So he said, you, what do you mean? I said, well, why don't you come and open for me? Wow. He goes, man, that would be a great thing. I said, I said, let me go back and tell Ed Torres at the Riviera. Now, Ed Torres was the head. Now, the Riviera, the casino, movie casino, is about the Riviera. So you can understand who the hierarchy was in this place, right? So I go to Ed Torres. I said, Mr. Torres, I'd like to, I'd like to have um, Rodney open for me. He goes, Tony, he's over. He's done. Wow. I said, uh, I don't care. He's hysterical. He said, well, you pay him. Now understand, I'm going to do something. This is, I'm not saying this to be cocky or anything, but I was doing $175,000 a week. That's what they would pay me back then. And that's 1976 or five or whatever it was. That's big, big money in those days. And we worked three weeks at a time. So I said, well, I'll pay him. So I called Rodney. I said, Rodney, how much do you want? <coughs> 7000 a week. I said, okay, you got it. $21,000 for three weeks. Okay, you got it. Tori says to me, if he doesn't work, we're done. I'm canceling this deal with you. We're done. Because I don't want him here. I said, well, I'm paying him. I'm paying him. <laughs> he comes in. I'm sitting in my dressing room, and I have the speaker on. It was like listening to a bowling alley. Strike after strike after strike, meaning laugh after laugh, oh, wow. like pins coming down, laugh after laugh. And all of a sudden, I get a knock on my door in the middle of his show, and it's Ed Torres. <laughs> he walks in and he goes, I'll pay him. And he calls <laughs> yeah, Those are the great moments because I was able to think that I was able, me, little Tony Orlando, was able to help geniuses like Dangerfield, like, you know, the story I, I told about Carlin. I, what a great gift God gave me, not only for me, but for me to keep, be able to open the door again for guys like that, that no one will ever forget. We will Tony, never forget George Carlin. We will never forget Rodney Dangerfield. We just absolutely. Tony, the great thing about you and Adam Sandler has the same quality as you are so humble. You do so much for people and you don't say a word. Adam is, you're right about that. But no, I'm talking about you. I've talked to Johnny about this. I'm humble, you but you put me in the same place as Adam Sandler, my God. No, but you're, 
but you do it quietly, humbly. You go see sick kids. You help the military. You do so much, Tony. And I seriously, right now, in front of all our audience and our listeners, I want to applaud you for all that wonderful stuff you. you've done. Well, you um, know, as I come down to the end of my run, I'm, I'm, I'm now 64 years in show business. So my first hit record was with Carol King in 1961. I was 16 years old. I'm 79 years old. I headlined in Vegas for 54 years. Wow. This is a wow. dream came true that I could never have dreamed that would ever imagine that I would have been happy with 64 hours in show business. That's how much I love the industry. And as I come down to the end of, of my career, I realized the thing that's most important to me is that I was able to take the success that God blessed me with and be able to help veterans. Like for 50 years, I've been working on behalf of veterans. I'm told that with our free shows in, in Branson for 25 years and around the country, around the world for veterans, I've raised somewhere between 150 and $200 million. On wow. That's wow. a great, that, that is the most satisfying thing of all. Of all the things that you could take all the gold records and all the awards, forget it. That's really what, and Adam does that. Adam helps people quietly. Yep. Here's a guy who I understand has made three billion with a B dollars for Sony films. No comedic actor has ever done that in our history. He never forgets like guys like you, Brad, or me. He put us in That's My Boy together. Yes. And he does it with such love and heart. Then 33 years, I worked with Jerry Lewis co-hosted the telethon with him for 33 years. If anything about this business of ours is that we're able to take the success that God blessed us with and that the audience has blessed us with and turn it into good like that. Because when I look back on my career, and thank you for acknowledging it, really and truly, when I look at what, what is it worth, other than a Mercedes, and a nice house. Right. What did I do with this blessing? And that's, that's the truth. The baggage that I carry most, that's the lightest and the proudest, that beats a Louis Vuitton, is what I was able to do for veterans and for muscular dystrophy. Uh, money does not buy happiness, but the happiness no. that you have bestowed on people with your celebrity is the greatest gift of all, Tony. I'm telling you. It is. It and, is. Uh, and if to... anybody knows that, it's you because you have that heart, Brad. And you know, and you, you, you being his partner, you know I'm right. Oh, he that's has a huge heart, too. That's why we. You, he, you care about people. I remember when you walked up to me and showed me the film of your sister on the film saying how much she loved me and how much she wanted to meet me, etc. Honest to God, Brad, that goes to the deepest part of my heart. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. That means more to me. I have a relationship with him that's hey. unbroken. It will never, will never be broken. You're an amazing guy. No, you too, Tony. Can I say I, something? I love you. His sister, his sister. So, his Wait, sister say, say that again, Fish. Your sister is ready to leave her husband for Tony. <laughs> it's still a love affair. Uh, Brian's the best. But Tony, hey, can, to I, close can I jump in, Tony? Too. Because I have so many people that write in emails and they're so excited about you coming on. We, we're so blessed. But a lot of your success happened with these two ladies. And they want to know how you started with Tony Orlando and Don. Can you go over that for our audience, please? Sure, sure. Well, if you look, uh, as you look at the screen, on the left, that's Telma Hopkins. And on the right, that's Joyce Vincent. Now, it's an amazing thing what happened with them. They were the background singers on Heard It Through the Grapevine with Marvin Gaye. They did Shaft with Isaac Hayes. Wow. It was Telma who said, shut your mouth when, she, when he said, John Shaft, he's a bad mother. She went, shut your mouth, which is a classic recording, right? So all of the backgrounds on the, all the four tops records was Telma Hopkins and a group called the Andantes and her cousin, Joyce Vincent who you saw in that picture with Telma. So I was producing Barry Manilow. I had signed Barry when I was working with Clive Davis. I was a vice president of CBS with Clive. 
prior to the Candida years, prior to the Tony Landon Dawn years. Uh, when the British invasion came in, I had to find work. So I started to work in publishing. Clive hired me as general manager of CBS Music. I got myself up to vice president of CBS Music. And a young man that I had signed was Barry Manilow. And I had, was in the studio and I was looking for some background singers that weren't the same ones that everybody used in New York. So I found out that Hot Buttered Soul was working at the Apollo Theater with Isaac Hayes, which was Telma Hopkins and Joyce and one other girl. So I called Telma and I said, would you uh, have the time to come and do backgrounds on this record, on this new artist I have, his name is Barry Manilow. Now understand that when I had called them, this is gonna sound complicated, Candida was number one already and Knock Three Times was number one already, but I did not wanna tell anybody that I was the lead singer of a group called Dawn because I was vice president of CBS and I wasn't about to let that job go because I did those two songs as a favor for one of my best friends. So shh, no one knew it until the moment I met Telma and Joyce. When I finished doing the session with them, I said, Telma, Joyce, you ever hear this record not three times? It's number one right now. Sure. I said, well, that's me. I said, I want to form the group because that group really was a studio group. There was no group. I was doing this as a favor for a friend. Would you please join me and we can create this uh, act called Tony Orlando and Dawn. And she goes, well, how much you got? <laughs> and I said, how much you want? <laughs> and she said, well, how much you need to have us? I said, I need you pretty bad. So she said, well, then tell me how much you got. <laughs> and I said, whatever you want. She said, we're So I go to the hotel and wait for her to come down six hours i'm waiting for this girl to come down so I, i'm not ready yet i'm not coming down because i'm getting ready to do the show with isaac so just wait and i said i'm waiting i waited for her for six hours she comes down she agrees to go to europe with me i take her to europe on a two-week tour not knowing if we're good bad if i really made the right decision the wrong decision we go into a club in Mallorca, Spain, because I wanted to break it in when no one knew us. And we got three standing ovations. And now we go to London. And we do a show called Top of the Pops. And the guy says, this is the hottest response we've ever gotten for an act ever. I said, we're ready to come back to America. We came back to America, and the rest was history. I knew in my heart that when we cut Yellow Ribbon, after we cut it, that I had a number one record. And I said to Telma and Joyce, we're gonna have a television show. And Telma said, there are no television shows because the variety shows were dead at the time. They were considered over except for Carol Burnett. Dean Martin was gone. Cher had gotten divorced, so the Sonny and Cher show was over. CBS comes to me and said, we wanna put you on in the summer. If you get high ratings, you have a television show. And the rest was history. Wow. Those, those moves happen in succession in almost lightning speed. So when you say, how did it happen? It's as I, in retrospect now, I realized that a career that became a network television show, 36 million people watching every Wednesday night, the first and only prime time multiracial group to ever have a primetime television show, a Puerto Rican and two black women on at eight o'clock at night, when that would never would have thought what could have happened, never got one bad letter, racial letter, nothing. We stood tall. And I have to tell you that meeting them in retrospect was a miracle because there is no way I could have said, let's start a group. It just was one happening after the next. And when I look back on it now, the only thing I can credit is divine intervention because it was a complete accident. I was already 
on my way to becoming a president of a record company. I was already on my way. I was already enjoying a vice president seat in one of the biggest companies in the world under a genius in Clive Davis. So when I met Telma and Joyce, when you say, what was that like? It's described because it's one miracle after the next. And in retrospect, I have no answer for you. I don't know. All I can say is this didn't happen. But there's any sense. But I, I believe no coincidences in life. I think the universe made that happen from record record executive to international superstar. Unbelievable. But it, and you know something, Brad? I never saw high school. Where do I come off an eighth grader <coughs> becoming a vice president of a company like CBS? How do I, only in this country, only in America can that happen. Okay? I never saw high school. I didn't know how to open a file cabinet in the office my first day at work. I was embarrassed to write to tell my secretary, um, how do you open this thing? You know, there's a little tiny little thing that you push to the side and then open. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing embarrassingly, I'm doing like this. <laughs> I never wrote a business letter. I never made a deal. And here I am, hired by the, one of the great geniuses of our industry. <laughs> in Clive Davis and excuse my dog. And <laughs> next thing I know, he's telling me to shut up already. I know. But the truth <laughs> of the matter is it's a story that's hard to tell because in retrospect, it's one miracle after the next. No one would believe what happened to me. Really? Why, why, why now? Why now, Tony? You and Franny sat down and said, because you have the greatest line in, in your show, tell us why you decide this is it. You're going to go on to do different things. Why are you retiring on March 22nd at the uh, Mohegan Sun Arena in front of 10,000 people? That will be your last show. Tell us why and why is it now? You just know. You just know. You know, I can still hit the ball. I just can't run the bases. That's the greatest line. You bet. Trademark that. That is unbelievable, right? And that says it all, right, Brad? I mean, guys, that says it all. Because, yeah. look, I'm 69 years old. The truth is. Are, you, wait, wait, are you 69 or 79? I, mean, I, I like 69. 79 years old. 10 years light. Years 69. I'm 79. Years old. <laughs> well, you look 69. I'm 79 years old, so I look, you look at Kenny Loggins, retired this year. Elton John, retired this year. Oak Ridge Boys, retired this year. My friend Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers, retired this year. The list of Foreigner, last show in Vegas, retiring this year. Why? Here's the reason why. One of the reasons why. So Yellow Ribbon's 50 years ago, 50, that's a half a century ago. The demographic of that audience is shrinking. It's, you gotta face the truth. I don't wanna walk, I'm looking at 10,000 people, 12,000 people, by the way, at Mohegan Sun. I've been working that venue since 1998. I can tell you that I'm watching my audience age-wise shrink why do i want to go out instead of a full house why do i want to go out and see 200 people why do i want to go out there and do that for what for what reason and sit in an airport and delay the airport the airplane's delayed for five hours and then it get can gets canceled and then the next day you gotta go and you got seven musicians that's costing way too much to fly the overhead is way over if my business was a candy store i'd have to close shop yeah. Because, it, because it's a business decision. So the emotional side of show business enters the picture, which is what you're describing. Why are you doing this? It's You're still doing it. Well, I want to go out knowing I did a good job. I want to go out knowing I'm not going to walk out there and go, oh, my God, how many people? I want to go out there being able to pay a band what they deserve, not cut them down because their salaries have... Uh, the overhead's gone up and the salaries have gone down. 
all those parts make a decision. So is it tough on me? Is it bittersweet? Yes. yes. Am I leaving something I've only known since I'm 16 years old, you guys? Yes. Is it is it at the same time a relief? Yes. Yeah. And so I can now look forward to leaving gracefully, leaving with my own self-respect. And I'm not quitting show business because I still have some muscles I like to flex. I'm a writer. I'd like to write some screenplays. If they sell, they sell. If they don't, they don't. It's back to square one. I wrote a Broadway musical. If it gets on, it's a hit. Great. If it doesn't, I wrote it. So I'm at a point now when my creative juices are about writing, writing a book, writing my shows, writing a film, writing a TV show. So I'm still in the business, but the aspect of touring, done. And you know what, Tony? You're going out on top, which is fantastic. A lot of sports stars, they come back. Boxers, they come back. But you're going out on top, and guess what? Let's 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 quote the great Frank Sinatra. You're doing it my way. Thank you. Right, baby. Thank I, you. I went to two. I want to share something with the audience and you, Fish. I went to two shows in the last couple of years, and I saw Tony. I saw him. So his so his son uh, John is a really dear friend of mine. He says, "All right, cocktails. You got to go to the Christmas show, and then you got to go see the regular show." So I go to the Christmas show. And I see a dancing, uh, that Korean guy, what's his name? Um, uh, as a puppet, what's the guy? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. oh, 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 yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That was hilarious. That little bit. You're yeah. around. Big uh, animated uh, guys that came out on stage, right? right. And, then, and then he has this dancing Santa who is absolutely fucking hilarious. You have a bit with him that is priceless. You killed it so festive for christmas and all that stuff but last year on april 4th tony was sweet enough to leave me a seat at his uh private table and i'm sitting there waiting for uh the show at the uh south point and this old lady walks up old jewish lady she goes who are you i go i'm brad grumberg i'm friends with tony she goes, i'm friends with tony too i write from the las vegas gazette i go okay I go, can I interview you? I go, Miss Davis, sure. who Miss Davis is. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. I, I go, sure. So she interviews me. I go, can I buy you a drink? Of course, she took the drink. I gave her. She goes, are you going backstage after the show? I go, yeah, I think so. She goes, I'll see you in line. So your show ends incredible. Your drummer, your brother, oh, your brother is, I mean, he's the salt of the earth. You love your brother so much. And that young kid you brought up, Oh, with the with, oh, he was my, um, he's going to be a star. I mean, you know, it's amazing how you can pick a, a you know a needle out of a haystack uh, of of talent. So the show ends, and I'm waiting. And uh, your wife, the beautiful Franny, she's the gatekeeper. Then she has a swing a wing girl as her uh, her second uh, in command. So they come to the stage door and they go, Brad Grunberg. I go, okay, I'm over here. So I walk up. All these people are waiting. And that lady, that older lady, is sitting there first in line. I look at her and go, I guess I got more juice. Uh, excuse me. I, I guess I got more juice than you, honey. Have a good night. And I walk right past her, and she's like, so pissed off. And she never made it in. She never no, really wouldn't let her in. It was like glass. You know, I'll tell you one of the hardest things for me at the South Point was. Yeah. As you know, that's a tiny little dressing room. Oh, that right. night, that night, because it was my my last night in Vegas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after fifty four years, there's a lot of friends that wanted to come and wish me well. Absolutely. And it killed me because you couldn't fit anybody in there, and so many people I love, like Miss Davis, who I love. Yeah. Uh, I do too. in, and uh, it it kills me because you know the truth of the matter is it's not about. Sammy Davis used to say to me. You know, Tony, it's not about you. It's about the audience. He said, you know, if you go up there like a lot of these young performers and think it's about them, remember something. When we walk on that stage, we don't think about us. 
We think about what we can do to those people. There's a guy out there. He, Sam used to say this to me. There's a guy or a lady out there. This may be the last show they ever see. You never know. Who knows? A car accident going home. You put that in your head and you make that the best show those people ever saw. Sam used to say that to me all the time. And he was right. He was. He was right. And so when you can't see someone, it's heartbreaking because you know they care about you. Even strangers that you never met before. I don't know their name, but they know me. And they've known me for 50 plus years. So we live in a business, three of us, that's unlike any other business in the world. We can can bring a healing to people. If people are hurting from a divorce, we can bring a healing. They lost money or whatever. We can bring a healing, make them laugh, make them happy. Yeah, I I went back there. I went back. Yeah. This is going to sound very heavy, but a yeah. guy walks backstage to me and he said to me, Tony, I remember it was in Toronto, and he goes, Tony, I have four stage cancer. And he said, This was the greatest show I ever saw in my life. He actually said to me, I can go now. Oh. So I go to him, I say, Listen, I see the light in your eyes, you're not going anywhere. Trust me, you're going to be fine. Four years later, back, who walks backstage? That guy with a big smile on his face. And he goes, Tony, I'm cancer-free. You were right. And he said, and you know what? It's still the greatest show I ever saw. (laughs) So when you experience something like that, as you guys both know, we don't live in an ordinary business. We don't. We're minstrels for God. We, we stay on a corner. It's called a stage. And we bring a certain kind of emotional, spiritual healing to people through a song, through a joke, through a dance, through a play, through an acting performance. We're used by them to look up and go, oh, God, that made me feel great tonight. Because, you know, as an audience, the three of us, it's happened to us. We've gone in and we've seen shows where we walk out going, man, I was feeling terrible. But that show that Sinatra put on tonight just blew me away. I feel so good after seeing him sing my way. Yeah. Um, it, you know, Tony. It's an extraordinary, very special business. When, we, when I went back, Fish, to the dressing room, we had a little uh, um, uh, That's My Boy reunion. Tony Orlando. Mr. Snacks here and Will Forte. Yes, that's right. And we were just chopping it up about Sandler and the great times we had. Maybe you could put that picture up at the reunion, uh, Fish. Uh, Tony, that's us at the reunion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. In Westwood, we had the uh, That's My Boy reunion at the Fox Theater. And there's Tony looking so good. Look at at how studly he is. Look at that. That may have been, that may have, wasn't that, was that open? Was that the, Red carpet night? Yeah, that was the red carpet. That was the uh, yeah red so. carpet in Westwood. Yeah, and uh, you look so sharp, buddy. Look at you, you stud. I remember, I remember that shirt because I think I think Franny bought me that shirt, and uh, uh, I said, "Mommy, wear a red shirt." She goes, "Yeah, you can stand out on the red carpet. The red carpet, wear a red shirt." So I never wear red because I remember that night. Did I ever tell you? You had a minute about that night. You got a second? Of course. course. By the way, you used all the George Hamilton products. You were looking so good with that tan. George Hamilton uh, provided you with all his products. Yeah. At the the reunion. I mean, at the uh, premiere. Sorry. So my mom, 83 (laughs) years old at the time. How old? She was 83 at the time. She's gone now. That night. What a woman. Two or three days before the uh, red carpet, she goes, so I'm going, right? I'm, I'm going to go to the red carpet, right? I said, Ma, you can't go to this movie. I said, why? I said, Ma, I say things in this movie. I can't sit next to you. <laughs> now, here's, here's the reason why. There was a line in the movie, which was, we're going to get our dicks up in the movie. And I, I had to sit in. I'm not going to sit next to my mother and next to my daughter. And, and, and no way. So I call Adam. I said, Adam. Listen, I know that you have four seats reserved. I didn't realize you had a seat for my mom. 
please do me a favor, Adam, don't sit me together with my mother. I'm not going to, I can't handle it. He goes, Tony, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. The four seats are together. We're sold out. So I go, Mom, really, you can't come. I don't care. Well, just because they say something dirty in the movie, you don't think I've heard dirty words before? So I go to the movie. We're sitting together. Here comes that scene. I start to shrink in the seat. I got my daughter to my right, my mother to my left. All of a sudden, I hear, we're going to get our dicks on. And I hear the whole audience laugh. And my mother has the loudest laugh of all. Oh, I <laughs> and I go, Mom, you don't mind that scene? She goes, mind? That's the funniest fucking thing you've ever said. <laughs> and my mother never used the F word. She never said shit in front of me. And then, she went, and then I turned to my daughter and I go to my daughter, you know what that means? She said, Dad. Listen to me. That wasn't you. That was your character speaking. You did that good a job. She saved my butt, my daughter. <laughs> she saved my butt. But that was funny because to have my mother in that movie, you know that movie can is yeah. All right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, she loved it. She uh, loved it. And that movie, by the way, has become a kind of a cult that we were in. It is. We yeah, were in a very special film there. Oh my gosh. It was so much fun to do. That's the one thing with the Sandman. He makes it you do the you do the work. He takes comedy very seriously. But it's such fun. Uh, you know, it's the, the ride is so uh it, it's it's it, it you make it makes you feel with the endorphins, you know. It's like you can't wait to get to the set because you know you're gonna laugh and have a good time. And that's what the Sandman wants you to do and wants you to experience. So much fun. He, he is he's one of the kindest guys ever. To be oh. that big a mega star movie star yeah. and not have any attitude, no ego trips, yeah. nothing. Just a good man who remembers his friends like you and me. Oh, he's very loyal. And I call him, and I'm sure it's the same with you. you get a you get an answer right away. It could be this much of an answer, you know. Love you, Tone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Love you, Tony. Tony, you know. Exactly. Right, 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 right. He always replies, always. It's, he's a great guy. One thing I love about Sandman and people like him and like yourself is that all good comes to those who give so much. And Sandman touches lives, and you're both very humble people. You don't tell, like I said earlier, you don't tell people what you do. Those are the Oh, Tom Cruise, another one. You know, Keanu Reeves, another one. These people give and give and give and give. And they, yes, they they they're they're very well off and all. They deserve it. They deserve it because they spread it out. They help people less fortunate. They help people in need. And that's the something. I don't know if you agree with this. I'm going to ask you both this question. So both of you give me an answer on it. Young performers today, I just, they don't just they don't. I don't think they give to each other like we used to. I mean it. What I see is Kanye West putting down Taylor Swift and then the, we would fight to help the other performer. We, you know, I remember Sammy and Frank and Dean sitting down with me, giving me advice, taking me into that dressing room, spending three hours with me after a show, worrying about how my show went. I remember Jackie Gleason calling me every single week after he watched my television show and say things like, hey, Tony, the sketch was funny, but don't ever wear a silver slip, a zipper on a black tuxedo again. It's the most ridiculous thing to wear. Caring about the littlest. <laughs> and I see to performers today not doing that what Adam did for you and me, not doing what Sinatra and Dean and Sammy did for me or Jerry. I don't see it. I see this. I see it's my album. It's my show. It's my moment. Am I wrong? Am I just an old guy not seeing that it's the same? No. And that my era is different? Fish, you answer that question and then I will follow well, you brought up something every, apropos when you said that you don't want to do a show for 200 people. And I deal with young kids all the time. And just to prepare for this interview, of the, of the kids that work in, the re, in my restaurant that I work in, none of them knew who Motown was. 
or the, the, the temptation. So there's no history with these young people about anything. No history of music that people like the Tony Orlando's, the Frank Sinatra's, and before you guys, the ones that you guys that were your mentors. So in the younger generation, it's all about entitlement. It's all about me and agendas and TikTok. Could you imagine if you had social media back in 1975 when you were doing, when you're working with your act and doing your show? I mean, they have a lot of advantages, but it's all about me. I agree. And I'll say something. It, 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 uh, it, it says that, you know, you wish you you wish everybody, wish everybody well, but you don't wish people better than yourself. There's a lot of jealousy, like you said, entitlement, me, 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 look at me, look at this, selfies, all that crap. You know, you help people, I help people, fish help people. There's nobody helping anybody. They're all cutthroat, and that's the bad thing. Kanye West is an idiot. Wait, can, can I jump in on something, Tony? Can I jump in on something? I want to ask you, because you're, you're a legend, you're retiring, you've been in this business for over 60 years. Do you, what do you see the future with the music industry when every one of the recordings that you did and the people in the past, the Motowns, and then even the, the British Invasion, the Led Zeppelins, every single song seemed to tell a story in two minutes and 47 seconds. And now, I'm going to honest with you, I'm going to piss a lot of people off. The music nowadays, some of it's hard for me to listen to. Do you feel the same way, Tony? Well, you know, I, I have a, I, I've heard that before, and I, I'm a little bit disagreement with you in this respect. I, I, I think that that some of the writing today and some of the talent today and some of the musicianship today exceeds, literally exceeds my era. Now, remember, I started with Carole King, Gary Goffin, Barry Mann, Cynthia Wilde. Simon and Garfunkel, we were all in the same office, Neil Diamond, all of us in the same place. The difference between then and now is everything is categorized. Everything is in such, there's a box for hip hop. There's a box for old hip hop. There's a box for contemporary uh, country. There's a box for traditional country. There's a box, for, so you really don't know what the music is out there. All you got to do is go to your preference of a box, your preference of, of that kind of music. So you're not hearing the eclectic radio stations you grew up with anymore. You could listen to a record by somebody in Motown, and they say, and, and at the same time, yeah, Elvis Presley at the same station, on Top 40 station, that doesn't happen anymore. So your ear is not hearing the good stuff because it's not out there in front of your face like it was when you and I were growing up. So there really is some great writing. I'll give you an example. You take someone like Kanye West, if you listen to Kanye West's product, he's a freaking genius. He's a genius. Absolutely no question about it. The guy is a genius, a musical genius, by the way, not just a rap guy, but you listen to his, for instance, his religious album, you sit there and you, your mouth will fall to your chest. His musicianship is scary. Then you go over to someone like, um, like Taylor Swift. You look at a Taylor Swift, Swift lyric and you go, this is just not an ordinary lyricist. This is a poetrist. This is someone very special. This one is not writing boom, boom and rhymes. She's writing stories. She's writing a story like, if you look at it, it's a mini play or a, or a mini movie. This is a woman that goes to Japan and works for 92,000 people. They show up and they can't speak English and they show up to see Taylor Swift and they sing every one of her songs. So today's categories are so specific and into boxes that you and I, us older guys who remember listening to Sam Cooke and listening to Supremes and listening to Marvin Gaye, all on the same station, and Elvis and some instrumental that was a hit in the movie like Summer Place or something, that doesn't play no So you're not really hearing all the music. You're only hearing, you don't even know where to go to listen to your music when you think about it. Like, I don't know where to go. I have to find my special category. When we were growing up, we had everything. So here's the deal. 
The musicianship in the studio today is better than ever. The writing today is better than ever. To write hip hop today, you try it. You try and write rhythm to words. It's not notes to words, it's rhythm patterns to words. It's fucking mind bending to try to write hip hop as a writer. It's mind bending how some of this stuff comes out of them. So my answer, my long answer to your story is yes, I love our era better. I love the way the music was presented to us, but we're suffering because we don't hear the whole picture. We don't. And when you listen to the whole picture, you're able to go to all these platforms and you start really dissecting it. These musicians are ridiculously talented. And they have to, by the way, because of videos, they have to, because of MTV started years ago, they have to know how to act. They have to understand the camera. They have to know how to dance because Michael Jackson set that bar. They have to know how to write they have, because it's self-writing. Writing your own self is important. Singer-songwriter is important today. In my day, it wasn't important. Sinatra never wrote a song in his life. Sammy never wrote a song in his life. Tony Orlando never song, wrote one of his hits in his life. But today, you better write your own stuff. If you've ever gone to the internet, and watch some of these kids on TikTok or on any of these platforms, the talent is mind boggling. You sit there and go, how is it that this kid is not a superstar or that girl is not a superstar? It's unbelievable. But you and I, because we're used to listening to stuff all at once, we're not going to those categories. We're not breaking it down to hip hop, traditional country, adult contemporary, we're not. So we're not, we don't know where to go. So we, we're kind of left out there. But what I'm talking about is not the talent as much as the attitude. Yeah. And attitude is right. ugly. The meanness between yeah, yeah, yeah. The disrespect, publicly putting other performers down in public is disgusting. Let me tell you something, Tony. Let me, let me take a page out of Elaine's book. What did she say to John every time he left the house? Be kind. These artists that make fun of each other, put each other down, that doesn't, that doesn't work. John gave credit to his mother for that? Yes, he did. <laughs> Believe me. John, yeah, every time he left the house, she said, be kind. So I'm telling all these artists to be kind to one another. It would be a better industry. It would be a better world. And uh, on that note, Tony, Tony Orlando. Well, you know, John's mother worked with some great artists. Oh, yeah, I know. I don't know if you know that, but she worked with Buddy Holly in her day. Yep. She worked with Burt Bacharach in her day. Yeah. She was in charge of Elvis Presley music yeah. at Hill and Range. Yeah, she worked with some great, she worked with some great people. What about you? You don't say anything bad about people. You have a kind heart. You don't need to put people down to make yourself feel better. I, I'm telling you, that's jealousy. And I've seen it in today's world in acting and in, in writing and in, in, in music and all that good stuff. Tony Orlando, this has been show number 50. Fish, incredible, right? This guy. Uh, sorry, I talk too much. I know you don't no, talk too there, much. There, I got to get one me. last thing in. Yeah, sure. Not, not, only, not only blessed to have this guy that I know Brad talks about you, Tony, like a like a, a, an older brother that, you know, you take a bullet for. But today is the 43rd anniversary of the Miracle on Ice, the, one of the greatest sporting events in American history. And we got an American icon with Tony Orlando right now. So yes, I like the symmetry, that kind of stuff. So um, do you believe in miracles? Yes, Tony, Mar yes, Tony, Orlando. Tony Orlando on our 50th. Can I just say something to both of you? Yes. That I look forward to this today because if you talk about kindness, that's what the two of you are. If you talk about the way you've treated me, you, Brad, when you come, you send me texts that make me cry. You send me love through the mail that meets my heart and my soul. Believe me when I tell you, this is not a podcast. This is a love cast. I'm honored by being on here with you. Thank you for the privilege. And thank you for being my friends. Always, always and ever. Good health and happiness and retirement. And I'm going to talk to your son and your daughter. How about a how about a documentary about your life? Has that ever been done? It's coming. Oh, good, good, good. 
Thank you. You need us, we're available. Tony, you're the salt of the earth. God bless you. Thank to you, you. God bless you. Say hello to the family. I will say a little tip for you. Number 50 in the books. I think Dave Landon. I think he thinks it's going to be my future son-in-law. I got a funny feeling. Yeah. Jenny. Elvis <laughs> Jenny. is his outfit. I love you. I'll see you at Elvis's place in Vegas. <laughs> Mary and Jenny. I'm so excited. I love you, Brad. I love, I love you. you too, Tony. You'd make one great son-in-law. Thanks, oh, Jenny would make oh, really all like you I couldn't you. before we go, you couldn't afford to feed him, trust me. <laughs> we can't afford we can't do a craft services on this show. That no one will take the gig, you know. So, crazy. Bring us home there. Bring us You've home. You've been baby. listening to the Fat Fish Podcast, heard on all your favorite platforms. Until next time. Love you. <laughs> My grandma, we love you. My nanny loves you. Thank you, Tony Orlando. Show number 50, baby. Yes, five, ten, twenty, thirty, fifty. Wow.